0: So, as you know, we've been in John chapter, uh, we've been in John for, since the beginning of the year, and so if you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 8, you can get there. Today's my birthday. And even Jay Fine gave me a hug, okay? So that's, hey, this is a good birthday so far, okay? So, um. No, we're in John chapter 8. Flip there. We're going to be in uh, verses 12 through 20. So as you know, we've been in the book of John since the beginning of the year. We're just continuing on from there. Last week, Cliff covered, uh, actually the last two weeks, Cliff covered the the passage of Jesus interacting with the woman caught in adultery. Today, we just move on from that. One one of the things I, I want to point out is that first thing we need to understand is that John chapter 8 is not a standalone chapter. It's directly tied to chapter 7. So in chapter 7, Jesus is interacting with the Jews at a a feast called the the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. That's going to be important for us to understand in a little bit. Also in our passage, Jesus makes one of the seven I Am statements of... Uh, John. And so, he. for instance, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. In our passage today, Jesus says that he is, I am the light of the world. And we're going to focus mainly on that. Although we have other passages we're going to read and cover a little bit, we're mostly going to focus on his statement of his self-declaration as the light of the world. So, let's jump right in. If you don't have your Bible with you, then uh, we have it on the screen. And so, uh, let's take a look. Verse 12 Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Since that is our focus, I'm going to read it again. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but, the, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Clearly not understanding what he is saying. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. That is a big statement. Verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Let me pray. Father, uh, we come to you this morning, having read your word, and we just ask that you speak um, to us, that you stir in our hearts uh, uh, for us to grow in affection and love toward you in faith. Uh, Lord, if there's anything that I uh, need to say that isn't in my preparation, Lord, that you bring it to my mind, and if there's anything that uh, I shouldn't, that you take it from my mouth. Um, be with us, Father, we ask. Amen. So, my desire... Uh, for you this morning, is I want to help you understand and see that living in the light of Christ changes everything about our lives. Living in the light of Christ changes everything, but it starts with following Jesus. That's where it starts. And so I have three points for us today as a good Baptist pastor. And so uh, point one this morning is that light provides purpose. Light provides Purpose. So, in order to properly understand the weight of Jesus' statement as the light of the world, we have to understand um, what that, the idea of light and darkness, and what it means in the view of Jews that he's addressing at the time. So, you might remember, if you've read Genesis, at the beginning of the creation account, uh, we see the earth is covered in darkness. And so, I have the verses for Genesis 1 and 2, or 1 through 3, up on the screen. And it It says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So the Bible paints a picture of a world that is chaotic. It's without order. It's without purpose. It's shrouded in. In darkness. So in the minds of the Jews that Jesus was addressing at this time, darkness and these other things would have been synonymous. They would have gone together. Darkness and chaos, darkness and purposelessness, darkness and void, um, all of those things would have gone together. And the spirit of God in our creation account is hovering over the waters, ready to spring into action and bring about purpose and fill the void in the area where there is. No purpose, and it's void. And then Genesis 1-3 says that God said, Let there be light. Yes, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. So the very first act of God bringing um, order and, and purpose to a purposeless world is bringing light. That God was at this point beginning to, uh, to work in what seemed, seemed like it was purposeless and chaotic. And the first act of that was to bring light. And then we see from the following days that God continues to pull out this and separate and divide and bring order and purpose to what didn't have it. And so um, we know also, if you know your Bible, you know that on the sixth day, God creates animals and all that, and part of that is He creates you and I, He creates humans as the pinnacle of creation, image bearers of God, and we were made to rule and subdue the earth. That was part of our role that God gave us as His image bearers on earth, and what did we do? As the people who, as the ones, as image bearers, the ones who were supposed to rule over creation and to tend to it, we marred creation. By choosing to take what God meant for His purpose and redefine it on our own terms, when we sinned. And so then from that moment, darkness re-enters the picture because of sin And if you're familiar with uh, Genesis chapter 3, God, from the moment sin enters the picture, has a glorious plan to bring about light and bring purpose back to what has been purposeless, what was then chaotic, what was then broken because sin, sin entered the picture. And so all of this is going on in the minds of the people that Jesus is addressing when he shows up and says that he is the light only God brings light. God is a God of light. What does it mean? Jesus is claiming to be the light of the world. He's claiming to be the one, at the beginning of creation, who's now actively working to bring about God's restoration to creation that's lost its purpose. It's void. It's chaotic. It's formless. Now, a sense of formlessness and voidness is a real problem in our society today, and maybe you're aware of it. May, maybe you're not. So, Today, more than ever, we have a society that's wrestling with its sense of purpose and meaning, uh, which is, go figure, right? We, we live in a society that wants to deny God's existence, but then get, begins asking questions that only God can answer, and then we end up in a confusion, And so uh, this is where our society is. In fact, Charles Johnston, you may be familiar with him. He's a very well-known psychiatrist, and he wrote for Psychology Today about our society's crisis of purpose. And he says this, I quote, I think of humanity's crisis of purpose as our time's most defining challenge, which is a big statement. A good defining challenge, which is a big statement. A good argument can be made that it plays a major role in many more specific crises, such as today's drug and obesity epidemics, the frequency of mass shootings, growing suicide rates, and people's diminishing faith in modern institutions. Today, many people feel lost and overwhelmed. They feel a hunger to live meaningfully, but they don't know the right questions to ask, the right vocabulary to use, the right places to look, or even if there are ultimate answers at all. Goodness. There is something that's fundamentally missing in our lives, and we can't quite put our finger on it, but we notice that there's a void in us as human beings. And we attempt to fix and fill the void, but no amount of self-conjured purpose lasts, right? Because uh, the clay can't tell the potter what it's meant to be. It's the potter who does that. And so self-conjured purpose doesn't last at all, but Christ being the light... Of the world, Christ, being the one at the beginning, uh, intends and desires to take what is formless and void in you, and to fill it, and to work you, and to shape you for His design and His purpose. It doesn't happen in an instant in our lives, not the second we say yes to Jesus, but I can say in my own life, and I hope that you can too, that I can look back at parts in my life uh, maybe years ago or maybe weeks ago where I can look back and see how God has been actively working and shaping me into the image of His Son. God is faithful to use and shape me in all kinds of ways, faithful to use the good times and the bad. God is good, and in Christ is the light that brings purpose he brings form to the void i um, i know in a time where our the crisis of purpose is such a fundamental and deep issue i know that there's people in this room who are asking the question of what their purpose is and i just want to encourage you the answer is found In Jesus Um, not in something that he supplies but then in Jesus himself Um, and uh, we will see further on in our passage uh, more of that so God has a purpose for your life and he desires to take what's formless and void in you and fill it because light brings light provides purpose point two this morning is that light reveals reality um, so, a little bit more on Bible context. You know I me, mean. I like to give you some kind of context. So, uh, I brought up how uh, Jesus is making, or he's having this interaction during the Feast of Booths. And this is important because it gives us context of where and when Jesus is making these statements. And so, um, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, your Bible might say, is an eight-day celebration that took, uh, took place every year in autumn in Jerusalem. And people, it was one of three festivals that uh, Jews were required to pilgrim um, to Jerusalem, and they would, uh, they would take part in the feast. And uh, part of the feast, or the feast really, I'm using the word feast a lot. Um, maybe that has something to do with the fact that my stomach is grumbling and we're going to eat after this. Um, Goodness uh, anyways, the feast um, was, uh, the, the feast was uh, meant to celebrate and remember the time that Jerusalem or Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, after they had been released from captivity and slavery in Egypt. They spent 40 years wandering the wilderness, and God provided for them in miraculous ways during that wilderness period. And so they would do different things during the festival to remember that. They had different things they did in the festival to remember how water, or, or God provided water from the rock. Or they did different things in the festival to remember how God provided manna from heaven. And one of the things that, that pertains particularly to our passage is that every night at dusk, the priests would light these four giant torches that were in an area of the temple called the Court of Women. And the Court of Women actually was the area where the treasury is so this is the context jesus is in this court and there are these four giant torches that are lifted high above the temple and it was said that these torches could be seen from anywhere in jerusalem and what the idea is the the torches reminded the people of how god provided direction and purpose and meaning in the midst of the wilderness, because if you remember, while they were wandering the wilderness, God would lead them with a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And so this was an act where they would remember this, and it's in this place where, uh, where the light, the torches are being lit, where Jesus stands in front of them and says, you see that? That's not the light. I am the light of the world. The pillar of fire lifted the veil of darkness during the night so that Israel could see where they were going. And Jesus says that he's the one who does the same. Nehemiah wrote about the pillar of fire in Nehemiah 9, 19. He says, uh, in recounting what, what God did in his mercy, he says, You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. And so, the pillar represented in this festival, represented the idea that God was directing his people, but also God was revealing what was hidden. He was shining the light in the darkness. And it's here where Jesus says that he's the one who reveals ultimate reality. He's the one who reveals, he is God's self-revelation. He's revealing who God is and so much more. Um, I have a video I want to show you of a powerful light, one that I'm sure a lot of you guys would love to have. And so if you want to, if you guys want to just roll the video. A lot of you guys wanted me to try the world's brightest flashlight on the highest hotel room I could find in Florida. And we're doing that today. This is the highest balcony room I could find in Naples, Florida. And we're going to see what the world's brightest flashlight can do. Obviously, I have to be really fast with this, I'm not going to point it towards the ocean because of the sea turtles, and uh, I'm just going to shine it down there. Wish me luck. Turning on the world's brightest flashlight in three, two, one. Okay. It's ridiculous, right? (laughs) I got to turn that off. Okay, so, yeah, so some of you are like, I want that flashlight. Um, so I looked it up. It's like 650 bucks, just in case you want it. Um, I can send you a link, um, but it is—it is a really intense. Apparently, you can only hold it for about five minutes before it gets so hot that it would burn your hand. But, um, yes, intense flashlight. And one of the, th- the reason why I show that video is because one of the things that I think is interesting is that before he lights the, the flashlight, you can't really see, you don't have much context. You know that he told you he's on top of a balcony, and you don't really know how high he is. But once the light comes on, you see reality. You see how high he is. You see the buildings below him. You see the trees way below him. And you can see very far off in the distance because the flashlight revealed what was hidden by darkness similarly jesus reveals ultimate truth he reveals uh, the eternal god of the universe and his character this is why jesus in verse 19 of our passage can make the statement that if you knew me you would know the father Because he is God's self-revelation. He's the image of the invisible God. This is also why in John 14, we'll get to it, I'm sure, much later down the road, but in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is why Jesus can say this. He's revealing ultimately who God is. And likewise, Jesus ultimately reveals uh, the truth about everything else in our world. We see who God is. We see who we are. We see who others are. We see God's uh, plan throughout history. and the future, we see what eternity will look like um, all through the lens of Jesus. It's him, and he takes the things that were once shrouded in obscurity and darkness, and he reveals them. C.S. Lewis has, uh, I love quoting C.S. Lewis. He's probably my favorite writer, and um, he has a really good quote about this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. The light of Christ exposes and reveals the truth, whether that be good things or bad things. So good things in that um, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that God has a deep and enduring love for you that even while you're in rebellion against God, um, that he sent his best. He sent Christ to live the life you could not live, sinless and perfect in every way, and to die the death that you deserve. And in so, exchanging his righteousness, his perfection with your brokenness. Through that, God, uh, you're restored back to relationship with God through simply having faith in Jesus and what he's done for you. That is amazing, and that's revealed through Christ. But also, there are things that maybe we would view as bad, at least at first, that are revealed through Christ, because uh, the light of Christ likewise reveals and exposes our sinful state. The more that we get acquainted with who Jesus is, the more we understand our own brokenness. Jesus brings this idea to light in John 3, 19 through 21. He says, And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people have loved the darkness rather than, Than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, what Jesus is essentially saying there is that seeing the light of Christ either leads us into repentance or it leads us into hiding. Like seeing the light of who Jesus is either repels you or it compels you that's that 's the reality of the light and when we walk in the light of Christ, he changes the way that we see everything, the way we see ourselves, the way we see God, the way we see ourself ourself in relationship to God, and the way we see all other people, the way we work, the way we do life, the way we parent our kids, everything is changed because the light of Christ shines on our life, and it reveals what was previously hidden. Light reveals reality, and Jesus is the light. So, light reveals reality. Light provides purpose. So, this is kind of the, the push of our passage in response. So, follow Christ to walk in the light. Follow Christ. We have that? Yes. Yes. So, in our passage, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This week, as I was studying for uh, the sermon, uh, this passage, I kept thinking of a really interesting story. Someone maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't. His name is, and I don't speak Italian, but as an Italian man, his name is Mauro Prosperi. And um, he was an Italian pentathlete who loved fitness and adventures. And he would often run marathons and ultra marathons. And in 1994, he and a friend decided that they were going to run the annual Marathon de Saab. Which is the Marathon of Sand, and it takes place in Morocco every year. In the entirety of the ultra marathon, if you're familiar with ultra marathons, they're, they're 150 plus miles. The entirety of the ultra marathon would to take place in the Sahara, across dunes and salt flats. Sounds wonderful, right? <laughs> no, um, no, it doesn't. But uh, this this ultra marathon is really for the best of the best. And, and Prosperi was one of them. And so him and a friend decided to set out on this race. And on April 10, 1994, the race began like any other ultra marathon. Um, Prosperi was one of 80 runners who was running that year. And uh, they set off, and um, Prosperi covered about 60 miles of terrain on the first three days, which were composed of salt beds, rock surfaces, and sand dunes. Um, So all the competitors would start off running together in the morning and then naturally they don't all run at the same pace and it's a race so they would spread out throughout the day and eventually would get to where people were running essentially all on their own. There's no one that they could hardly even see off in the distance. And so uh, that's how you can kind of picture this in the Sahara. And also part of the race regulation is that everyone who ran had to run in a self-contained fashion, meaning they had to carry like, their sleeping bag and their clothes and their food and everything on them in a backpack. The only thing that they were provided was they could refill their water bottles at check-in stations. Um, that is it. Yes, I know I see some of your faces. Sounds terrible. I agree. Um, so, I actually have an image. Uh, so, this is, is starting off in the day. This is a group of, of uh, runners, um, and they're taking off together. But obviously, throughout the day, they would separate over time. And so, uh, Prosperity heads out uh, in four days, he's on the fourth day, which is the, the longest leg of the marathon. And in this longest leg, it covers 53 miles. Uh, if you, some of you just want to take out running 53 miles in a day, that sounds wonderful. Um, but prosperity had maintained momentum at this point in the marathon, the ultra marathon, where he was in seventh place. So he's killing it. This guy's really good at what he does. And he was racing, and then around mid-afternoon, a sandstorm hit. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Saharan sandstorms. I'm not Um, But my wife who grew up in El Paso tells me a little bit about sandstorms and they're terrible. I decided to look them up a little bit this week just to show you a video of what they can be. And so if you guys want to roll that video of the sandstorm so we can all cringe. This thing is going really, really fast. Yeah, we are. We're gonna we're gonna stick this out. God, it's it's across the entire horizon, and it was just wind, you know, with driving sand. So we just kept um, rolling. Ran over us like a freight train. It seems like they've been transported to Mars. For four hours, the sand blocks out the sun. Wow. Um. Looks wonderful, right? So Prosperity was caught in a sandstorm. I don't know if it was as thick as that one, but um, here's what I know. It lasted eight hours. And uh, justifiably so, you could see that the race organizers in the midst of that would probably tell someone just to shelter in place. And that's what they would tell people. So at the beginning of the race, they said, If you get caught in a sandstorm, just stop. Shelter in place. Find a bush or something nearby and stay there and you'll be okay once the sandstorm passes, you can continue on." But, Prosperity thought he had a better idea. He thought he could navigate it on his own. And I want to read you what he said. He said this, I quote, "Uh, When the sandstorm started to blow, I lost sight of everybody else. I kept running though, because I thought that I could see the trail. I was in seventh place and I didn't want to lose my standing. It was nearly dark before the winds relented. I started running again, but after only a few minutes, it occurred to me that I had lost the trail. And so he decided to camp where he was, because the sun was setting, and he was just going to wake up the next day and figure out where the trail was and continue. And so he camped where he was, woke up the next day, found where he was supposed to go, and started running. And he ran for four more hours until... Um, he realized, actually, this last four hours, I haven't seen anyone else or any markers. Let me make sure I am going in the right direction. And so he went to the top of a large sand dune near him, and when he got to the top, he looked out, and as far as he could see, it was just sand dunes. This is like my worst nightmare. (laughs) sounds terrible. And so... There, were no, there was no evidence of civilization, and get this, he opened up his backpack, he takes a look at his water bottles, and he said he had about a, a quarter to an eighth of a water bottle left. And so he did the only thing that he thought he could do, which was just to continue walking. He knew, if I just walk in the direction where civili- civilization is, I'll get there, and they can help me. And so he started walking in the direction of civilization, he thought. And so he walked for one day, and two days, three days. And then on the third day, off in the distance, he saw a small building that he thought would be his salvation, and he ran up to it. And it was an abandoned Muslim shrine that hadn't had anyone visit it in many, many years. And there was nothing there except for insects and lizards and bats. And so he was able to catch some of those and eat them. And uh, that propelled him to continue his journey, and he continued to walk for a fourth day, a fifth day, A sixth day, on the brink of death, a seventh day, an eighth day, and on the ninth day, he spotted goat droppings on the ground. And he followed those droppings until he got to a herd of goats, and with the herd of goats was a herdsman. And the herdsmen were able to take him in, give him water, which he wasn't able to take in very easily, and they took him to a hospital. Um, at the hospital, they gave him 16 liters of fluid via IV before he was fully saturated, and um, and he survived. Um, but in nine days of walking, thinking he was going in the right direction, he ended up 180 miles away from where he was supposed to be. The whole time, trusting his own intuition. He wandered 180 miles off course. Why do I share this story with you? Because I think that a lot of us in our walk with Christ are like Prosperity. That we're walking along with Christ, we're on the path with Him, and then the storms of life kick up, whether those be storms that are caused by our own sin and sinful patterns, or if they're just storms in life. We live in a broken world, Jesus promises that we will have trials, and so um, something kicks up, and a lot of us, when that happens, our response is to say, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do, I know what I need to do, I need to push on, I know the direction I'm supposed to go, I see the trail, at least I think I do, and so I'm going to press on on my own power, I'm going to dig myself out of this situation, I just need to get out of the storm. And so we find ourselves making statements like, if I just got this issue under control, or if I just stopped doing this thing, or if I I just went to counseling, that would help, or if I just got a vacation, I just need some rest, and I'll be okay. If I were to just get my health back, I'll be fine. Um, If I were just to get into a healthier relationship, If I just fixed their problem, I know some of us have said that. If I just got a different job, if I just got paid more, if I just wasn't carrying this anger, if I just wasn't carrying this grief that won't go away. And we just, and we just, I just, if I just did this, if I just did that, and during the storm, we think that all we need to do is simply make it to the other side of the dust cloud. And we think that we know the path well enough. And so we push on. But when the storm is over and the sand has settled to the ground, we're 180 miles off course. And here's the thing. Like, if we got what we wanted, it wouldn't really fix our issue. If we, if we got through the storm it really wouldn't fix our issue, because the issue is less about the storm that you're in, and the issue is a lot more about who you're following. You left the path long ago because you lost sight of the leader. You lost sight of Christ, and you stopped walking in His light, because Christ provides purpose, Christ reveals the reality of who God is and who we are. He's the light of the world. But as he says in our passage, you have to follow him to receive him. Jesus said it um, another way in Luke nine twenty three. He says that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So, whether you've been a follower of Christ for decades, or if this is your first encounter, the response is the same, right? To surrender your desire for control, to surrender your desire to simply get out of the storm, and instead direct your eyes and your life and your feet towards the one who can and will. Because the promise of Jesus isn't that he's going to just get you out of the storm. The promise of Jesus is that even in the midst of the storm, he's the one who lights the way. Even in the midst of the storm, he's the one who sustains you. And so, as the one who provides purpose and the one who reveals reality, my question to you is, will you follow him today? Will you follow him today? If you've never surrendered your life to Christ and you want to make that step, I would love to talk to you um, about that. I'll be, We're gonna sing a song in a minute. I'll be down here and we'll, I'd love to talk to you about that. Or if you don't feel comfortable coming forward, uh, after the service, I'll be outside and we can talk then. Um, I or Cliff would love to talk to you about taking that step. But for those of us who have given our life to Christ, I think a lot of us are in a place where we would acknowledge that we gave our life to Christ, but we've wandered from the path. And so the response then is to repent, to stop, to direct ourselves to Jesus, and to say, I'm going to trust you moving forward. Can we do that this morning? Yes, let's do it. Stay with me. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing a song together about running into his arms. Father, you are good, and we ask this morning, Father, that um, if we have wandered from the path of following Christ, if we have relied on our own intuition, and we've left, we've left where you desire for us to be, Lord, I ask that you um, reveal that to us, in this moment, that you direct us to the person of Christ, and that uh, we wholeheartedly follow Him, um, Father, be with us in this moment. Speak to us through this song, um, and Lord, give us uh, give us the the desire to. Live with you daily, to die to ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you. Um, I ask this and I pray this. Amen. Amen.